Welcome to Endometriosis Summit, the podcast. If you have endometriosis, treat endometriosis, or love and support someone with endometriosis, then this is the podcast for you. In season two, we explore life surrounding endometriosis, be it your gut or connective tissue or trauma or relationships. This is the podcast that embraces all the things of endometriosis. Please join our hosts, our founders, Dr. Sally Sorrell, a pelvic physical therapist and person with endometriosis, and Dr. Andrea Vidali, an endometriosis excision specialist, reproductive immunologist, and founder of Predmune. The following episode deals with the delicate subject of trauma. Some may find the information triggering. Please take care of yourself first. If you need help, reach out to one of the links found in our podcast bio. Don't suffer alone. Today's guest is none other than Peter Prine. Peter Prine is a trauma psychotherapist, EMDR consultant, and author who specializes in working with survivors. He is in private practice in Northampton, Massachusetts, and has a research interest in treating endometriosis pain with EMDR. His writing can be found at Peter, let me spell it for you, it's a little harder than we thought, P-E-T-E-R-P-R-U-Y-N dot medium dot com. Please welcome Peter Prine. Hi, how are you today? Thank you so much, Sally. I'm delighted to be here. We're so happy to um, have you here. How is it that a male therapist in Northampton, Massachusetts, decided to have such a, a wonderful and giving focus on trauma and the endometriosis patient? That is a great question. Uh, I'm reminded of the aphorism that if you become a teacher by your students, you'll be taught. Well, if you become a therapist by your clients, you'll be taught. And really this focus came from um, following the needs of the people who were coming to my office. Now, I will say that my first internship was at Lesley University, which is um, 90% female. And so that was really my boot camp in understanding um, a lot of issues like body image and eating disorders. Um, And then I began to learn about the role of trauma in women's lives. My first job was working as a substance abuse counselor in a methadone clinic. And what I learned was trauma was everywhere, but um, the female identified clients often had sexual trauma on top of everything else. That made a deep impression on me. And then along the way, by coincidence, every supervisor I'd had used this trauma technique called EMDR, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. And I just felt called to that. Um, And then ever since then, uh, on average, the clients that I have are female survivors. Um, And as I've learned, it would be inevitable that one of them would have endometriosis. Um, And this year in particular, 
um, I was working with a woman who I will call Shauna, uh, who disclosed her lifetime of suffering with endometriosis. And I realized, you know, maybe EMDR can help. Yeah, we're so glad that you made that connection because having endometriosis is having trauma. So whether it's being traumatized by your body or traumatized by um, pain or infertility or traumatized that you're not like everybody else that's out there, it is a or traumatized by the medical gaslighting. Let's not even forget that. It is a tough disease to have. So I wonder as a trauma specialist, what is trauma and how do you feel that affects the journey with endometriosis? Great question. And I'm really glad you're asking this question because I think there are a lot of assumptions in society about what trauma is. Um, and in fact, I think it's much broader um, than say combat veterans and natural disasters. So what I'd really love to do, Sally, is just take a minute or two to give a broad definition of trauma, focus in particular on some emotional experiences of trauma, and then also look at power dynamics, because I think that leads to your question about endo. So one way to think of trauma, just generally, is any experience that is overwhelming, that's beyond our ability to cope. One of my colleagues likes to describe it as something that you couldn't prepare for in any way. Um, now, this can be either physical or emotional, uh, and it can either be an accumulation of many small things, not just the stereotypical one big dramatic thing. So if you think of um, sexual or racial microaggressions, for example, a lifetime of living those, uh, I would argue, is more traumatic than, say, one car accident, because at least with a car accident, um, you know that it's over. Um, so an accumulation of many small things can be just, if not more, traumatic. Um, something else that I think is important to emphasize about trauma is it doesn't necessarily have to be overt violence. It can also be neglect. So in the state of Massachusetts, it is illegal to neglect a child, an elderly person or a disabled person, because that's traumatic. Um, trauma also often includes the experience of feeling treated like an object. It's kind of like someone or something is trying to revoke your humanity. Um, and with that, very often there's a sense of disempowerment and disconnection. That's kind of a general overview of the trauma landscape. Um, but I think it's really important to put on the table some experiences around emotion that I think will inform the rest of our conversation. The first two are the role of anxiety and depression in trauma. Um, and when you think about it, they kind of make sense because anxiety is basically anticipating the trauma happening again, waiting for the next shooter drops, as it were. You could describe it as anticipatory stress. So if you've had something overwhelming happening to you, you're afraid it's going to happen again and that creates anxiety. Um, what I think is a little less understood is that very often depression comes with unhealed trauma. Um, and I think uh, depression is normally associated um, with tangible losses, like you know losing a family member or a job or something. But there's some very powerful intangible losses that very, happen, very often happen with trauma, such as a loss of sense of safety, um, trust, uh, sense of self, um, and those more intangible, intangible losses when they're not mourned can show up as depression, uh, either in sadness and isolation or sometimes in persistent anger. So anxiety and depression, if someone comes to my office with chronic anxiety and depression, 
there's a good chance there may be unhealed trauma in their background. Y yes, you want to say something? I'm just going to say that every single thing that you mentioned, somebody with endometriosis experiences on a daily basis, if not at least on a monthly basis. So they're attacked by their bodies, losing control over their bodies in some way monthly. So everybody's waiting for that shoe to drop until the pain becomes bad enough that it's all the time. And then for the most part, people with endometriosis exist in a medical society where you're also powerless. And there's also somebody sort of holding the keys to the kingdom over you, which is a good way to have trauma developed. And then you're constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop because there's a million causes of pain from hernia and IC to the endometriosis itself. And then endometriosis is a loss of sense. You know, we have a lot of clubhouses that talk about on our, on our journey that talk about um, many people do lose their jobs. Many people lose their relationships. They lose this concept of what they'll be when they grow up. So no wonder why there's so much trauma in the endometriosis population, right? Absolutely. And by the way, that reminds me, I forgot to say in the beginning, I think it's really important in a conversation like this to invite your listeners to do whatever they need to do to take care of themselves throughout this conversation. It would make complete sense that some of this might be triggering for some people. Um, up to and including deciding maybe this isn't the conversation you need today. Like do whatever you need to do over the course of this conversation to take care of yourself. Um, but yes, I agree with everything you've said. Um, and I also want to acknowledge that I'm very much a beginner in learning about endometriosis. Uh, you're the expert in the conversation on it. So I really appreciate your rejoinders like that. So that's the role of anxiety and depression that often show up as sort of like the co-joined twins of trauma. But there are two other emotions that I think are central to the trauma experience. And that is the dynamics of guilt and shame. Now, uh, I want to emphasize that the experience of all emotions is very personal and subjective. And I believe the world is big enough for more than one definition of these things. But here are some very simple definitions I found that many of my clients relate to. You can think of guilt as the emotion we feel when we know we've done something wrong. Shame can be thought of the emotion we feel when other people know we've done something wrong. And that includes the fear of other people finding out. They didn't even have to have found out yet, just us imagining them having found out. Now, um, I think it's also useful to elaborate that the opposite of shame, therefore, would be a sense of belonging, acceptance, inclusion, and dignity. Now, these come up over and over again in all kinds of trauma. And one of the things I've learned from my clients is that I think there are actually two distinct varieties of shame. And I'm going to call the first one authentic or um, rational shame. And that's the shame we feel when we do something that we know is contrary to our values and who we are as a person. So if you're under enormous financial stress and you steal money from your friend's wallet and you immediately regret it, uh, and maybe even later you apologize for it. It's natural when you do something contrary to your own values to experience a sense of shame. And in that sense, shame can actually be helpful. It sort of pulls us back to who we want to be. But there's a very different kind of shame that comes when you are a victim of someone else doing something wrong to you. 
And this is very common for people who've experienced childhood trauma, where abusers time and time again will blame the child for making them do it. And in this sense, the shame is sort of installed by the other person, and I would call, say, false shame. And the reason I think it's important to make a distinction between these two is that the average survivor will feel them equally, but once you name them as different, they can realize, oh, actually, that shame didn't come from me. And that distinction can be an enormous step forward in recovery. Yeah, do you think that um, the shame that many feel talking about their periods or talking about um, painful sex or even being the only person in a room without a child or being the only person in a room who maybe didn't finish college because their pain was so bad. Do you think that fits into a category of this installed shame? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, so what I would say is that the traumatic experience of endometriosis does not begin with bladder issues or constipation or painful periods or bad medical treatment. It begins with society installing a stigma and shame around menstruation. And if I can make an analogy to say racism or sexism, if you grow up in society as a person of color and every day you leave your home, you're bracing yourself for a racial microaggression. Then on top of that, you experience a trauma that anyone else would describe as trauma, you're already starting from a disempowered position and that trauma is going to feel worse. So the same is true, my experience, with endometriosis. That if you're starting with something that is shameful, any trauma on top of that is gonna be worse. So I was thinking recently about, um, uh, say, making an analogy to dental health. You know, what if we were all ashamed of dental hygiene? What if we hid our toothbrushes and dental floss um, and always made excuses to go in the bathroom to brush our teeth? What if uh, having a toothache was someone you never told anyone about and then if you had to go to the dentist, you did it, you were shrouded in secrecy? Then anything around dental hygiene would have sort of a double whammy about it. And the fact that there isn't shame around getting a toothache, you just go to the dentist and have a toothache, there might be trauma around some medical surgery, but there isn't that added layer of shame that makes everything worse. Right. So with periods, there are because, you know, we can even the teens, you know, they tuck that tampon into their sleeve. Nobody should know. I mean, period underwear is great because nobody knows that you're wearing it. But, you know, you don't tell anyone you have pelvic pain. You don't tell, you know, nobody sits around a dinner with their like in-laws and are like penetration hurts. You know, there's just things that we don't talk about, but are tortured. And I I wonder, are there stages of trauma recovery? Absolutely. Um, and can I just slip in one more thing, though, to oh, add yeah. what we were talking about, which is the dynamic of power around trauma. And it's been implicit in what we've been talking about, but I want to use the example of, um, let's say your best friend uh, makes a facetious comment about your body or your period. And depending on what kind of friendship you have, you might laugh together about it. You might brush it off. You might, you know, tell them off. But the point is, you just move on. Now imagine that same sentence, whatever it was, comes from a parent, your doctor, let's say a law enforcement official. 
the same sentence coming from a place of higher power can create trauma where there was equal power, there was none. And when you have stigma, I think you're automatically creating a power dynamic. Right. I think in endometriosis that um, people have pain, you should learn to deal with it, or, you know, maybe you should stop eating, blah, 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 whatever it is, because that's the root of all your pain. And there is a constant power dynamic. And so we like at the endometriosis summit, our goal is to give the power back to you. Right. Nice. Yeah. So that's why we do, we want to talk about it. We want to be open about it. Um, and we want to be more open about it because we don't want anyone to be home alone in pain and suffering from that power dynamic that makes their voice too quiet to ask for help. Beautiful. So, yeah. Do you see that in your patients? Absolutely. In fact, I would argue that, um, uh, going back to your question of what are the phases of trauma treatment, um, that one of the things a psychotherapist's office aspires to be is exactly that environment. Um, it's a place where you can feel sane, seen and heard uh, without judgment, where your voice can just flow without inhibition, ideally. Um, so that actually leads to the first stage of trauma treatment for most of my colleagues. And again, it's important to put out there that there are multiple ways to go about trauma treatment, and the model I'm about to describe um, is a consensus model of most of my colleagues, but others may follow different models. Um, but it's known as the three-phase model of trauma treatment. And the first step is simply stabilization and safety, um, creating that safe environment for the client, uh, providing them with tools and techniques to manage emotional and physical arousal that is a natural part of trauma treatment. Um, but we want the client to feel is a sense of personal empowerment over their emotional and physical arousal, both in the session as well as in day-to-day -day life. And so what I'm waiting for before I continue with someone is that someone has been able to apply some of these tools in everyday life to help manage them, manage themselves. Um, then and only then, when someone feels that sense of empowerment around their own arousal, do we then move on to um, what is referred to as trauma processing. And essentially what that comes down to is identifying traumatic events in the person's life, and then going through a process to desensitize and reprocess those memories so they're no longer triggering. Um, and, you know, that can take weeks, months, or even years, depending on their background. Um, so one very important thing about trauma work is um, saying that it is not a race. Uh, it is mastery-based, not time-based. We take our time. Slower is faster in this work. Um, and pacing is very important, that it's natural for people to have some emotion during trauma processing, but we want to titrate that arousal so it's not completely overwhelming. And then the last phase of the three-phase model, um, you might call integration. When a person has processed their traumatic memories, it's very common that they feel like a new person. Um, they have a sense of perspective on what's happened to them, uh, that it wasn't their fault. Um, and very often people naturally gravitate toward roles that allow them to use what they've learned about trauma recovery um, in their life in some way, for example, example, in helping other people. I wonder when we talk about that first stage of recovery and needing that sense of safety, 
With endometriosis, in many ways, you're never safe in your own body. So, and I know that some of the patient groups and, and creating blogs, maybe, maybe that's a way for self-empowerment, but how do you work with the person that is never safe in their own body? Such a great question. Um, so I think one general statement to make is, um, trauma work is possibly the most intimate activity there is. Uh, you can learn all you can from textbooks, but every single trauma uh, client is unique. Their background is unique. Your approach needs to be tailored to them moment by moment. Um, and so I don't think there's going to be a blanket answer to that question, but I think it starts with um, creating a sense of safety in the office. Um, and you know, that's not going to come overnight. It can take months depending on the person's background. Um, so I think it first comes down to being safe enough simply to talk about things that they haven't felt safe to talk about before. Um, it's no accident that in this work that I did with Shauna, um, she came for anxiety and we've been working for six months before her period pain came up. Um, I don't think that's an accident. I think it took that long for her to feel comfortable talking about it. Um, and then it's how the therapist responds to those disclosures that I think can, um, uh, you know, continue that process. And as far as safety in your body, um, you know, I think another thing about any psychotherapeutic treatment is um, recovery is never absolute. It's not like finding a switch and throwing it and from that day forward, you're completely cured. Um, so, you know, particularly in my work, it's not about never having another intense feeling. It's about working towards feelings that are just more proportional to what's going on. So a person may still have pain. A person may still have some anxiety about the pain coming back. But the difference is, um, I think they blame themselves less and they have more tools for managing it. Exactly. I think um, endometriosis may haunt you for a very long time, but having tools in the toolkit to process it becomes really, really important. How does the psychology of pain play into all of this? Great question. Um, so I think the most important thing in talking about treating pain from a psychotherapeutic standpoint is to start with the fact that the brain is the moderator and processor of all pain in the body. I think we have a tendency to uh, look at pain as happening in the body part that's wounded. And of course that has a contributing factor, but all pain is mediated by the brain. And I think all of us have some intuitive sense of this. Many people have had the experience of, for example, being engrossed in an activity they love doing, like playing a sport or a musical instrument. And at the end of it, they notice and they look down and they see they have a cut on their hand they never noticed was there. Conversely, you're on your couch hanging out reading a book, you get a paper cut and suddenly you can't concentrate on the book at all because the paper cut is just screaming at you. Well, of course, what the brain is doing is it's prioritizing what it needs to be done in the moment. Um, so the brain moderates all experiences of pain. So what happens, one of the things that happens psychologically uh, when we experience pain is there is input from both our memories as well as the shadow of the future coming to play when we experience pain, particularly in chronic pain. So if you think of having migraines, for example, when you feel that onset of the migraine pain, one of the things that happens is you immediately think to yourself, oh no, not again, and you have this catalog 
of all the other times you've had migraines. And part of you is thinking, please don't let it be as bad as that one time when it was so bad. All right? So the, the weight of the past is happening. And then at the same time, you have this question about how long will this migraine last? And am I going to have to live the rest of my life like this? So even though it's happening in the moment, the past, present, and future all accumulate to make it even more traumatic. And that's definitely my experience listening to Shauna of what her endometriosis pain was like. Well, past, present, and future is a term the trauma therapists love. Do you want to expand on past, present, and future? Well, um, I think it's a function of just elaborating on what I said, that um, when, you, when you're experiencing anything, uh, there are the memories that accumulate that feed into our experience of it. And then there's sort of the shadow of the future. So it turns out that a treatment like EMDR in particular um, is explicit about those three phases. So there is a time when we do a trauma history to come up with the traumatic experiences from someone's past. There is a part where we look at present day triggers to see how they could be managed and cope with. And then there's a part when we look at um, what are future situations you think you might encounter and how can we equip you for dealing with them better? Right. I think everybody with endometriosis has um, experienced the past, present and future experience of trauma when they want to go to a doctor because you've been to a doctor when you're probably 20 and had a bad experience. And then you're constantly triggering that past experience when you're in the doctor's office. And even when you're trying to make the doctor's appointment, right? Exactly. You're like, sweat, I don't want to call. I'll call tomorrow. I'll, exactly. I'll do it later. I'll take some, oh, can't do it this week, right? Because you're, you're triggering that past, present, and future. And so I would love to say, I wish doctors would be better and we're working on training them and everything. But I think that's why we have to talk about trauma because it is trauma. Yes, it is. Yeah, so if someone was constantly in a pained state and they're attacked by their body, which is what endometriosis is for so many, are they likely to live in this window of tolerance or, or what is that term? Can you explore that for us a little bit? Sure. Uh, so the notion of a window of tolerance was um, invented by a psychiatrist named Dan Siegel to explain a model of emotional and physical arousal. So if you can think of your emotional and physical arousal going up and down over the course of a day, um, when we are under threat, uh, our body mobilizes to take care of us for this threat. For example, um, giving us stress hormones to deal with fight or flight. Um, and in that sort of emergency response mode, which we might call hyper arousal, um, all we're doing is crisis management. We're not really taking in information or learning or relating. Um, after a crisis has passed, it's extremely common for the body to sort of collapse and want to withdraw to recover. Um, and so there's this state of what's called hypoarousal, um, where we withdraw, typically isolate, and basically recover. So in between those two extremes, um, Siegel gave the name a window of tolerance. And in our mid-range of arousal, that is when we are our best selves. 
It's when we are alert enough to take in new information, but not so aroused um, that we're stressed. And so it's within that window that we can create new insights, learn, be creative, relate to other people, be aware of our own emotional experience. And a key goal of trauma treatment is to try and manage moment to moment the client's arousal. So ideally they stay as much within their window of tolerance as they can to help desensitize and reprocess traumatic events. So I wonder if somebody is say, first of all, they're in pain every 28 days. They have a stomach ache. A doctor keeps telling them is all in their head. They go to a doctor after doctor who don't help them. They have a ton of scans that are negative. And, and are they, if you live in this constant hyper arousal state, what does that do to you and to your brain and to your body and to your pain? Uh, well, it's devastating. Um, and, you know, we can look at the experiences of uh, children who live up, live in abusive families. Um, and the cost of bracing yourself for the next um, abuse, uh, living in that kind of fear, is an enormous tax on the nervous system. Um, and actually, one of the things that inspired me to research endometriosis more was learning a single statistic, um, which came from, I think it's the Hutch Institute, um, where they had this enormous survey of nurses, and they had both historical data as well as current health. And for nurses who had experienced um, acute or severe childhood trauma, 79% had endometriosis. Now, I know endometriosis is complicated, but to the extent that it might have something to do um, with our immune system, you can imagine growing up in a home where you're constantly bracing yourself uh, for the next trauma your immune system is going to be completely out of whack. Um, and if you live like that, you know, for decades, it's going to be even more out of whack. Um, so I think there definitely are similar things that happen with uh, chronic illness and endometriosis. Right. We do know that endometriosis is not an autoimmune disorder in that it's not um, a system attacking the other system the way other immune disorders are. Um, and we also know that likely endometriosis is laid down when you're in utero and then becomes hormonally reactive. So it's just piling trauma on top of a disease that was already there. Exactly. Um, but it's not necessarily activating the disease. And, and there are many loopholes in the studies that say, um, people with endometriosis all experienced um, childhood trauma. Having read that research, um, because there are many who haven't and have terrible diseases, including myself. So, yeah, you know, I, I think it's a good example, but I want to say to our listeners out there, you don't have had to have had childhood trauma to Absolutely. have had, right. Absolutely. So, but what does happen with endometriosis, almost with everybody, is medical gaslighting and gaslighting almost by the parent or the caretaker, the husband, the wife. Um, and I wonder, you know, how do you think that affects that that constant message that it's in your head or that there's nothing wrong with you, but there is something really wrong with you. But how do you think that affects trauma? and the person with endometriosis. Yeah, it's devastating. So, um, you know, gaslighting is itself a form of trauma. 
I mentioned earlier that trauma is the experience of, you know, feeling like your humanity is being revoked from you in some way, feeling disempowered and disconnected. Um, and if you get those messages chronically, uh, you know, that you're crazy, you're incompetent, it's all in your head, um, that in and of itself is traumatic on top of whatever other pain you're experiencing. Um, and that definitely happened um, in my work with Shauna. She went through different stages of reflecting on past experiences and, you know, seeing that it really wasn't her fault. Yeah, it's very, very hard in endometriosis because it's a small community that will hold you up and say, it's not your fault. But we're getting larger every day, I feel like. And actually, I'd like to add to that the dynamic of power that I mentioned before between the average person and their doctor. I mean, I feel like I was raised basically to think of doctors as gods and whatever they had to say was law. Um, and so if I go to a doctor with something and they make their conclusion, I'm not, it doesn't occur to me to question it. It doesn't even occur to me. And so if the answer is it's all in your head, well, then I'm going to believe it. Um, you know, and, and hearing the stories of, uh, so many different, um, people going through, you know, the seven to 12 years it takes to get a diagnosis. I mean, it's just been horrific for me to hear. Um, so that absolutely is trauma upon trauma. Right. We talked to Brandon Johnson, who is another therapist, and we talked to him about support and support from your partner. But one of the things that, um, we discussed in that particular episode is, that balance of power and the power a doctor is given culturally and that certain cultures are told never to question. Obviously I'm Jewish. No one told me that because um, look at what I've done um, creating the endometriosis summit, but there are cultures where it's very wrong to question the doctors. And so in that episode, Brandon really like almost slams his hand down on the table. And he says like, it's time to question. And we have to give you, that's what this is about today. Also, we're giving you the power to question, right? Right, Peter? Beautiful. So when we talk about, like, let's talk about what you do. What is EMDR and how does that help someone with endometriosis? And I do want to say, and Peter said it very clearly in the beginning, EMDR may not be for you. We're just presenting one thing that may help you. Um, with trauma, but it's not, it may not necessarily be for you. No, I really appreciate you emphasizing that. Um, and as I say to all my clients, I'm not a doctor. I can't make a promise that a psychotherapeutic treatment will um, eliminate any kind of physical pain. But for many people, it can help alleviate it. So getting back to what is EMDR, um, it turns out that uh, Everyday memories are stored in the brain in a fundamentally different way than traumatic memories. And one way to think about it is um, every, on a normal day when we experience events, there is a chronology of events that happen. There's the sensory information, what we see, smell, taste, touch, and hear. And then there's the story we tell ourselves about what happened. And on a normal day, when we go to sleep at night, our brain kind of sorts through the events of the day, decides what's to keep and what to toss out, and puts all these memories kind of like books on the bookshelf of our long-term memory. And then we get up in the morning, and one of the reasons we feel refreshed is that our memory has basically cleared the floor for the next day. 
So something fundamentally different happens with traumatic memories. In the case of traumatic memories, because we're typically not fully present um, when they happen, we're not able to make full sense of what's going on. And so it's like this sensory data can't fully be paired with a story of what happened. It's disjointed. And it's sort of like a book lying open on the floor of our mind that can't be closed and put away on the shelf. Um, so those books lie there and that's why we often feel when we feel triggered that we're reliving the event. It's like we're just tripping over this book on the floor of our mind. So if you want to heal those memories, what you have to do is two things. First, you have to find a way to desensitize ourselves to them so you can approach them without being overwhelmed while staying within our window of tolerance. Then you engage basically in a dialogue with the memory. It's sort of like having a conversation between your present day self from a place of safety and your past self. And by doing that slowly, you stitch together a more honest narrative of what actually happened. Once you do that, it's like the book can be closed and put away on the shelf. Now, it turns out that if you alternately stimulate the left and right hand sides of the body, either through eye movement or tapping, there's something about that that facilitates this desensitization and reprocessing. So the technique um, is called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, and it uses that to heal traumatic memories. Now, I want to ask you a question, and I'm telling you, every viewer is going to, and every partner, parent, or person <laughs> near the, the, the listener is going to relate right. to this, but okay. do, do you like literally when, when you're unpacking that trigger and the book is laying on the floor, that's a great analogy. Do you realize you're tripping over the book that happened because the doctor told you your stomach pain didn't matter while you're, or are you just screaming at your partner, throwing a different book at them because you can't unlock what really is causing the trauma? And I think with endometriosis, we get that a lot is that we're so busy normalizing the pain and normalizing the experience, like you said, of hiding the tampon, of not talking about our pain, that a lot of people don't realize what's triggering them in the first place. And so is part of the therapeutic process going through and identifying triggers, or is that too traumatic for the person living it? Because nobody wants another book thrown at them. <laughs> That's such a great question. So I think what your question is making very clear is how complex trauma work is. And that um, in any trauma work, there's going to be some starting point. But you need to create space for the mind to go organically where it needs to go to heal. And so um, you could start with processing the traumatic memory of, um, uh, say, a really harmful doctor's appointment. But you then might go into the past and realize that it's related to how you learned about menstruation to begin with. So there's definitely an organic process to it. But all along the way, you're doing moment-to-moment -moment pacing to manage the client's arousal so that um, uh, they stay within their window of tolerance as much as possible. Now, if you like, I don't know if we have time for this, but um, to give you a sense of EMDR, I, I could read a very short excerpt from an actual session, if that would be helpful. Just take a couple of minutes. It's up to you. I would love that. We have all the time in the world for you, Peter. We think... Okay. 
I believe that trauma and working on your trauma, although the lesion of endometriosis has to come out of your body and be treated for true relief from the disease, true relief as a human being, that's the healing journey. The healing journey is not going to come without dealing with the trauma. Yes, exactly. You know, it takes more than right biopsychosocial. It takes more than one thing. So we have all the time in the world for you. Go ahead, please read away. Okay. And I just want to say whatever resources I mentioned, I will give you the links for and you can share with your listeners. Um, so this is describing just part of an EMDR session I had with trauma. Um, and as I mentioned, one of the things you need to do is you need to choose a starting point. Um, so we decided to use a memory of her lying on the bathroom floor in pain as the starting point for EMDR processing. The next step was to identify a negative belief that might be underlying how she thought about her pain at that moment. Shauna realized that part of her experience of lying on the floor was thinking, my body is bad. Next, we identified a positive belief that would she preferred to believe about herself instead. She came up with, my body is good. After each set of eye movements and tapping, Shauna would tell me what had come up for her. Over the course of the session, Shauna began to piece together her personal history of menstruation. She recalled how growing up, menstruation was a taboo topic in her home. The first time she talked about it in depth with her mother was after she got her first period, and then waited two days to tell her mother because she was embarrassed and afraid that she had done something wrong. Like many women, she was raised to be ashamed of menstruation and that one of her jobs as a woman was to make sure that no man ever knew she was having her period. As one expert has coined the term, culture of concealment around menstruation that exists in most cultures around the world. As Shauna put it, I didn't know I needed to talk about this. Adding endometriosis pain to this picture only intensified her feelings of isolation, self-blame, and self-loathing that she was feeling as an adult. At the end of the session, I asked her what her main takeaway from today's processing was. She said, if the body I'm in now is good, then the body on the bathroom floor is good too. The next week, I asked if anything felt different about her period pain this month. She said that while her pain had been average this week, what felt different was giving herself permission to be gentle with herself. All her life, her strategy for dealing with period pain had been to try and push through her day as if nothing was wrong. It was a novel idea that there were other ways available to cope to her. She also uncovered a critical unspoken belief from her family that she had internalized so deeply that it had been a barrier to engaging in self-care all these years. Growing up, she was taught that being weak was the worst thing a person could be. As a result, listening to my body would have to acknowledge that I'm sick and sick people are weak. Having desensitized and reprocessed the memories associated with her period pain, she was now able to see, I'm not a sick person, I'm a person who sometimes has pain. It has nothing to do with anything else. Very powerful, Peter. Very, very powerful. And I think what's important about that, the reason I wanted to read that is, even though we started with pain in the present, you can see how her mind went back in time to the foundations of learning that preceded everything else. And, and that's one of the things that EMDR and other trauma treatments do, is you need to deconstruct the meaning that people make of the trauma so that they can heal. And that sometimes goes back a long time. 
Yeah. And you bring up um, my favorite concept, which is words matter even to yourself. So Tracy Scher is a physical therapist who has a whole lecture on words matter, but words matter. And so I hate when people say um, my stupid uterus or uh, my dumb body and your, your body's really doing the best that it can under these incredible circumstances of having disease within it. And so even when you feel dark and, and, and down, it's very hard to say, love that body, but a, a therapy could help, could help give you the tools to get there. I love that you said that. I think it's so important. Um, and personally, you tell me what you think. I think those kinds of comments are internalized sexism. I, I do think, um, I, I actually think a lot of them are very, and, and sexism is um, body image issues, right? But I think for many um, people who identify as female, the, the concept of my dumb body has to do with what it looks like. And even if you're in pain and you're saying my dumb body, I do feel like it's an internalized, like we don't look like now life on Instagram, but we don't look like life in um, Teen Vogue or Cosmopolitan when I was growing up. And, and, and it doesn't seem like anyone on the outside is having that life. So I, I, I definitely hear you on that. Now, your story reminded me of something else and, and we'll go down this tangent just a little bit, but you know, with endometriosis, there's a sevenfold increased risk if a parent had endometriosis. So if, and, and what I found in, in most experiences dealing um, with patients is that the, when the mother comes or the aunt or the sister, they don't realize they also have the disease because everybody's experience of endometriosis is different even within the disease. How does that intergenerational trauma affect your experiences with trauma? Absolutely. Um, so I think what you're um, highlighting is there's actually a spectrum of complexity of trauma. Uh, and one way to think of it is um, uh, single event trauma would be typically the easiest to treat. Like someone has one car accident, that's it. So then we add multiple events um, including something like endometriosis with, you know, that's chronic and we have complex trauma, more than one event. Um, so then another plateau of complexity is when the trauma happens when we're growing up, which we call it developmental trauma. Um, then, uh, in addition to that, um, you know, they can be combined so you can have complex developmental trauma. Then we have intergenerational trauma you know, across generations. And of course that occurs with lots of different things. It could be alcoholism, but as you said, endometriosis is one too. Then uh, the highest tier is historical trauma. And this would include um, community violence, um, genocide, uh, that kind of thing. Um, COVID is gonna be a form of historical trauma. Um, so there's no question that when something like this exists in a family, it's gonna make things worse. The variable is whether it's talked about or not. So there are plenty of um, uh, families that have had atrocities in their past that never talk about it. That's the shame piece, that's normal. Now you can imagine a family that would be more open, say talking about periods or endometriosis or alcoholism, whatever it is. 
and that that would alleviate some of the trauma, but it's still there. Um, so there's no question that it makes it worse. And that's another level of treatment. Yeah. I think the whole portion where you read, uh, my mother told me never to let anybody know. I never let a man know I have my period. I think that is such a common experience in endometriosis in, in people in my age group. I think the younger, I think it's changing, but like, you can't even put your sanitary products in a regular garbage can, you have to hide them. You can't like, you know, no one should know. And I think that that also, it affects the way that you use your voice. So for, forget the pain, getting rid of your trauma or having that treatment, it, it helps you access yourself so you can advocate for yourself, right? Absolutely. In fact, um, uh, one of the things I do coach uh, clients on is how to deal with medical providers and there's not going to be one right answer but um, one thing I suggest is that when they work with a new um, medical provider that they write them a letter uh, and state explicitly I'm a medical trauma survivor this is my history of the disease but also of medical trauma I need you to know this before we meet um, and when you meet with the practitioner for the first time uh, you know, take control of the conversation at first and say, did you get my letter and did they read it? And, you know, a good practitioner will be extremely grateful for that kind of history. And if they haven't, you just say, you know what, I need you to know that I'm a medical trauma survivor. And the main thing you can do to help me today is X, Y, Z. Perhaps it's tell me exactly what you're going to do before you do it, whatever it is. Yeah, I, I think the GYNs that um, mostly the endometriosis summit works with, we get that letter. I wish primary care would get that letter yeah. um, because so many try to do what's proactive for themselves and their primary care gets 15 minutes with a patient and they didn't bother to read the letter. And then it's another session of trauma therapy, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, you know? actually, Shauna on her own suggested, wouldn't it be great if after every um, OBGYN appointment or every um, mammogram that there was a trauma therapist in the medical facility and you just went to them right afterwards? Yeah, wouldn't it be great if we didn't need to do that? Well, there that would be great too. <laughs> right, wouldn't that be great? Um, so I wonder, you know, what is your take home message? And then you have a very special message you wanted to read as well. Yes. Um, so as far as sort of a, a take home message from all this, uh, you know, we talked about how trauma is the experience of feeling disconnected and disempowered. So I think the main thought I'd like to leave your listeners with to further their own healing is cultivate empowerment and connection. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I so appreciate um, what you're trying to do with the endometriosis summer, because I think it's trying to do exactly that. And let me just also give a shout out to a nonprofit called PAVE, which stands for Promoting Awareness Victim Empowerment. They provide advocacy and support to survivors of sexual abuse. Um, and uh, I was scheduling um, a podcast with their director and there was a choice we had to make and I offered two choices and she and I said, which one do you want? And she responded by saying, do whichever makes you feel more empowered. And I was so stunned by that because my entire life, I've never heard that as a response to anything. So what would it be like if you went through your day with 
what would make me feel more empowered as the decision procedure for all of our choices? So cultivate connection and empowerment. So yes, um, I wanted to give Shauna the last word today. I mentioned to her that I was doing this podcast, asking her permission to share um, her story. Um, and I just said, you know, if you had the opportunity to say whatever you wanted to the listeners of this podcast, what would you want to say? And this is what she said. You didn't do anything wrong. It's okay to talk about it. It doesn't have to be private. You can talk about it with whoever you want to. It would be cool to be connected with other people who have it, to have doctors facilitate a community, to talk about all the other ways that it impacts your life, not just how many days you're in bed. And to talk about the shame piece, naming how it's viewed in society. Endometriosis is not the same as having diseases in other parts of your body. There is added shame. One of the things I've learned is my body is good, healthy, and whole. And that is a drastically different way to view my body than a year ago. Those are perfect and powerful words. I thought and so. Really, the inspiration of everything the Endometriosis Summit does, which is to build a community where patients have an equal voice uh, to lift the shame and taboo of the disease, really. Um, and, and we work very hard, like having you here today, to explain total body healing is not just about taking a pill or having surgery. So very powerful words. As we close, how can people reach you? Um, so you can just search online for my name, find my Psychology Today profile, reach me through it. Um, I also have a series of articles, mostly psychoeducational on medium.com. Just look for peterprine.medium.com. Right. And spell your name because yes. we want people to find you. Yes. Um, P is in Peter, R is in Robert, U as in uncle, Y is in yellow, N is in Nancy, P-R-U-Y-N. Right. So this has been amazing. I hope that you'll continue to join us, Peter, for um, a lot of our trauma exploration, be it here on the podcast or at Endo Summit Workshop. And it. yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Like what you hear? You have two options. One, hit the subscribe button and never miss out on an episode. Two, become a supporter of the Endometriosis Summit. Your small donations go a long way for ensuring open, an honest discourse about endometriosis. Link to support on our anchor profile.